that's the trillion dollar question. I think that human nature, and I, I hate to say it about human nature, but oftentimes we are drawn to what is easy and quick and the least painful. And unfortunately, to become a master in your field, in your domain, in your industry, it takes time. What a lot of young people don't recognize, and I get these questions here and there is, hey, what is the direct line that I can draw from where I am today to where I want to go? In human nature, oftentimes there's a thirst to take shortcuts. And if there's a technology that's in front of you that's cheap or free, and it allows you to save a ton of time by taking shortcuts, a lot of people are going to be drawn to do that. Hello and welcome to Tech for Finance, where we help finance professionals leverage technology to level up their lives. I'm your host, Adam Shulton, and today we're thrilled to have Carl Seidman, a titan in the world of financial advisory training and strategic consulting. Carl, the founder of Seidman Financial, is renowned for his deep expertise in FP&A, specializing in strategic planning, cash flow forecasting, and working capital optimization. His skills have made him a trusted advisor to CFOs across various industries, having worked with companies of all shapes and sizes, including Hewlett Packard Enterprise, Radisson, Santander, Michelin, Verizon, and Walnut, just to name a few. Carl's skills extend beyond advisory, though, as he's also a sought-after speaker and trainer in financial leadership development, known for his dynamic and insightful workshops. Outside of work, Carl enjoys traveling to unique places with his wife taking adventures with his twin six-and-a-half-year-old boys, going to live music shows, and eating adventurously. But before we start, make sure to subscribe to Tech for Finance on your favorite podcast platform and on YouTube, and don't forget to sign up for the free Tech for Finance newsletter at techforfinance.com. But Carl, it's great to have you today. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, Adam. I've got to ask, and I know I sent you a couple of questions. How do you define eating adventurously? Uh, so I've I've had the the great pleasure throughout my life of of being able to travel to dozens of countries around the world, and uh, what I like to do, whether I'm traveling overseas or whether I'm here locally, is to go to a place and say, "What's good here? What what do the locals eat?" Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been to some places where um, I did not know what I was eating, um, but because the locals said that that's what I was supposed to eat, that's what I ate. And um, just having an open mind and tasting tastes and flavors that I'm not accustomed to. It's all part of the adventure. So we're just talking slightly alternative. Are we talking full on like snake blood in the back of a bar somewhere? No, not snake blood. But I'll, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I'll give one example. When I was in Vietnam, a delicacy there was something called balut, which mm -hmm. is an egg that is kind of partially developed. Mm. Uh, and so rather than eating eggs the way we might in the United States of, you know, you have your egg whites and your yolks, imagine that proceeding a little bit further into the, the life form. Uh, and so I did not know what I was going to get. I thought that I was going to be eating a, a hard-boiled egg, you know, just like firm egg whites and a firm egg yolk. And I open it up and I, I remember my, my instinct was to say that this wasn't done correctly. But then <laughs> I, uh, I remembered where I was. And I said, well, this is how they eat it here. So I'm going to eat it the way that they do. Uh, mm. And that was an experience. There we go. And it's down in one go, isn't it? Isn't that how they do it? Pardon? Is it down in one go? You swallow it whole? Oh, I don't even remember. I, I, was, <laughs> I was so taken aback by what I was seeing and doing that, that I don't even remember how, how I ate it. Um, but hey, when, when you're there, that's, that's what you do. There we go. 
So um, maybe an unusual way to start the conversation, but I had to <laughs> ask the question. I had to ask the question. So sure. To... No, back on track. So um, I'm, th- I'm thrilled to have you on, Carl, because I, I I follow what you do quite closely, and and you've been a bit of inspiration to some of the stuff that I've done. Um, you're very good with sort of the instructional videos and, and all that sort of stuff. But when I post, um, I found that on some occasions you're not afraid to challenge and offer like a maybe a bit of realism, a, a bit of a, an alternative perspective. Um, I saw the webinar that you did with Planful, you know, the, the AI webinar, the back end of, of last year. So mm-hmm. I wondered whether we could start off, obviously, from an AI and technology perspective. How are some ways that people can maybe challenge their point of view, especially with the the buzz that's going on at the moment? And maybe you can share some uncommon beliefs that that you've got in the space. Yeah, there's a, a couple of points I would raise, and, and maybe the first point I would I would mention here, Adam, is that um, none of us in this domain know everything. Mm. Uh, and earlier in my career, when I was trying to prove myself and and show that I knew what I was doing and I was knowledgeable and I was experienced, um, I had a maybe a psychology couple couple decades ago of oh I've got to know all of this, mm. but as I've gotten older and more experienced and more mature, it's unveiled to me just how much I don't know. And just because I personally haven't encountered something doesn't mean that what I think is impossible is impossible. I mean, it it may be done in a different way somewhere else by a different company with a different person. And so what I always like to do is to have an open mind and say, look, I know what I know, but you, Adam, you, you've come across things I've never seen before, that I've never heard before. And it's my duty, not just me professionally, but people who come to me and trust me to become familiar with what your experience is and what other people have done. And so I think that we owe it to each other and to others to constantly be challenging and saying, you know, what is it that I've seen? If you're doing something different, I want you to show me what that is. Or if you're mm-hmm. doing something a certain way that I've seen done differently, I'm going to challenge you on that. So mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's, that's how we grow. That's how we learn. And that's how we find out what's going on in the world. And then maybe just one last point of what you said of, you know, going into AI and technology, um, AI has been around for decades. And mm-hmm. despite recent times, of the buzz that's coming through, you know, open AI and chat GPT and language models. This is more of a new phenomenon in the latest cusp of AI. But for you know, decades, AI and machine learning has been a thing and we're all learning about it together. Mm-hmm. And I think just coming back to your point there about it's your duty to challenge and understand that's helped keep me on my toes because, um, and I, I give an example. So we've spoken previously on, on podcasts from an adding value perspective on being maybe one of one or one of zero, i.e. what's the value that you can provide that nobody else can. Mm-hmm. And if you are posting about stuff and producing content on stuff, it's nice if you are actually the domain expert. So you have caught me out on a couple of occasions when I've posted something and then there's been a question and then it's immediately got those cogs wearing to say, well, actually, maybe not my knowledge isn't deep enough yet. You know, could I have positioned that in a different way? Could I have explained something better? So I think 
it comes from that group accountability. And it's also a way that you can spot a rat really quickly, right? If somebody just posts something and you don't get any response when you ask a question, that's sometimes a way to sort the wheat from the, the chaff, as it were. So I appreciate that that perspective. So, and you kind of part, part answered because maybe it is an uncommon belief that you should challenge and, and get more into the nitty gritty as opposed to absorbing. But from a tech perspective, I remember um, one of the elements of that webinar with Panful last year, coming back to your point about AI being around for decades. One of the key themes in that webinar was maybe generative AI isn't the best form of AI for FPNA. Are you able to talk a little bit more about that and the, the context that that was set in during that discussion? Yeah. So as I had mentioned, as you just reaffirmed, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence has been around for decades. Uh, and a lot of people who are just starting to get into it, the reason why I believe the people at large are now starting to get into it is it's become accessible in layman's form in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. So anybody can go onto a Bard or a Chat GPT, open up an account, and start getting to work. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother can do that. My <laughs> you know, grandparents would be able to do that. But there's a distinction in being able to say, how can we really make use out of data and information in a way that's truly meaningful to a business versus in a way that's just user friendly? Mm -hmm. And so if you turn the clocks back maybe 10 years, the main topic of discussion, it was probably even documented somebody as the as somewhere as the word of the year is big data. So mm -hmm. 10 years ago, the word of the year was big data, where all these companies had the resources, had the platforms to be able to aggregate all of this information. But mm -hmm. the pushback that was also buzzy at that time was, well, great, we have all of this big data. Nobody knows what to do with it. We don't know how to actually leverage it in, in an effective and efficient and a meaningful way in real time. Well, with the advancement of FP&A financial technology, there is that ability now. I would say within the last couple of years, up to maybe the last five, a lot of the major EPM and even ERP platforms now have the capability of saying, well, we have all of this data that's connected to our systems. We can now use machine learning and uh, trend awareness and signal monitoring and anomaly checking to be able to take a look at the data that's in the system and being able to make sense of it. Mm. And so rather than focus on generative AI and these you know, large language models of, let's just take a look at language patterns, what a lot of the financial systems are doing and, and have been doing is it's not saying, let's take a look at words and patterns. It's saying, let's take a look at the data and identifying anything that looks strange, anything that looks inconsistent based upon the assumptions that we're making anything that doesn't look congruent. And so while I do think that there is tremendous value in generative AI, uh, I think that there is also a, a huge amount of value and assets in the software that's not necessarily generative in form. Hmm. But do, do we think it's going to get I don't think I know the answer to this question, but do we think that the way that we interact with data is going to come better with generative AI? Because I, I'm still not sold yet because, and I think it was the, the, the is it described as a hype cycle when a new technology is introduced and then you get this big spike where everybody's talking about it. 
hence what we had last year with OpenAI. But then it drops off, coming back to your point earlier about you learn more and then you appreciate how much you don't know, but then you also appreciate what something can't do. So it was dressed up as a, oh yeah, you will now be able to use AI to connect all of the dots, which you could kind of do already, but then there's going to be no silos anymore because you're going to have an AI that sits in the middle that you're going to be able to talk to about everything and it's going to answer questions for you. I think we've seen glimmers of that and there are some very creative companies that are pushing boundaries where they're developing AI into the core of their solutions. But I'm still not sold on the immediate timeline on on having a magic AI bot that sits in your systems that's going to be able to answer questions for you. I don't know what your what your thoughts are on that. I totally agree. I, I completely agree with you. Um, when uh, over the last handful of years, when the LLM AI machines have become public and accessible to anybody, uh, you know, I'm I'm skeptical of any new technology. Uh, regardless of whether it's AI or or traditional. And the reason why is because, to your point, there's a big hype cycle of, oh, this is going to change everything. And I do believe it's going to completely revolutionize business, finance, data, humanity, and, mm-hmm. and more. But I think what's challenging is at this stage, I still think that we're in the early innings of knowing what this will look like many years down the road. Hmm. And if we were to take a look back to, I want to say it was November or October of 23, is that when all of this started to happen? If you take a look, being in the future now, back to the very beginning of even what has transpired over that amount of time, it's remarkable. Mm. So back when it first came out in the public sphere, and and admittedly I've been experimenting with a weekly uh, ever Mm. since, is what are the limits? Mm. And if we push it to try to be more than it's capable of doing, more than it's capable of being, that's really dangerous. Mm. And what I think is maybe two sides of the same coin, that coin being the technology and the capability, is people who have experience and self-awareness as well as technological awareness can be able to to leverage it and utilize and see where it's right and see Mm. where it's wrong, see Mm. where it can be immensely powerful and see where it's met its, its threshold and its boundaries. Whereas on the other side of the coin are people who might be starting out in their careers and saying, oh, I don't have to put in the next 10 years of my career to learn these things because Mm -hmm. AI and the technology is here to make me a shortcut. And through my personal experience, even, I've had some young people who I've delegated some work to and the work has come back to me and I'm like, this does not look like it's something that you did. Did Mm -hmm. you leverage AI for this? And they say, Mm -hmm. yes. I'm like, this is wrong. Like, this this does not make sense. Mm. And so we have to be very cognizant and thoughtful of, is AI going to be this all-encompassing bot that we can go to for everything? Or what are its limits? And what do we use it for? And where do we have to put on this you know, cap of skepticism to be able to question what it is that it's giving us? It gives me mm. wrong answers all the time, but I'm mm. smart enough and I'm aware enough to be able to challenge it. 
Quick one guys, I'd like to take a moment to invite you to the AI Finance Club. The AI Finance Club isn't just another professional group, it's a dedicated platform to help finance pros integrate AI into their work. Now with AI revolutionizing every aspect of business, staying up to date and building AI skills is no longer an option if you don't want to get left behind. So with a membership every month you'll receive a live workshop with industry experts including me to help you apply AI in practical finance scenarios. You'll get an in-depth review of the latest AI tools tailored for finance so you know what works best. You'll get customized AI prompts to help transform the way that you work, curated news and updates on AI advancements in the finance sector, and deep dives into AI in finance processes to help optimize your finance operations. Now, personally, I do believe that a hive mind approach to learning works wonders. So on top of what I've already mentioned, you will have access to a community chat where you can connect, share, and learn from a network of finance professionals who are all embracing AI together. Now, as a Tech for Finance listener, you'll receive 10% off your first annual subscription, plus you'll receive free access to the entire ChatGPT for Finance course, both the videos and written guides. Now, to take advantage of this offer, go to techforfinance.com forward slash AI and enter the code ADAM100 at checkout. Once again, that's techforfinance.com forward slash AI with the code Adam 100 at checkout. See you there. So, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but just scratching into what you're talking there about pushing boundaries and limitations. You said you, you kind of, you know, trying to keep awareness of it. You're testing it on a, on a weekly basis. Have you got any examples and it doesn't have to be really detailed, but where you've tried to get something, but you have started pushing those boundaries. Have you got any examples? Yeah. So, a lot of what I use it for today is structuring of my thoughts. Mm. Uh, I use it as a guide. I don't use it to create the output. Um, so for that purpose, it's it's really wonderful, the LLMs. However, when I put in financial files, and these are not client files. These are just files I make up or that I push mm. it with. And I say, what's going on here? Mm. Um, oftentimes, it gets it right but sometimes it gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other times where I'll be working in some code, whether this is in a Microsoft suite product or otherwise, I say, I'm struggling with this code. Can you fix this for me? Or mm -hmm. this is how I've written something. Can you give me some alternatives? Mm -hmm. And it gives some very convincing outputs. And many of them can be right, but many of them are completely incorrect. Mm -hmm. What's tricky is that if you don't know that it's incorrect and you unleash it into your employment or into a client mm. or into your company mm. and mm. you just mm. let it run, well, you're about to embark upon a very embarrassing moment or perhaps even worse, something that's catastrophic mm. for the company, your team, and maybe even the rest of your career. So I think that it's very, very important to put in some real life cases and get the personal awareness of what it's getting right, what it's, what it's getting wrong. So it's not just giving the technology the reps, it's also giving you the reps of knowing where is it usually right, where is it usually wrong, and what do you need to watch out for. So you used the examples a couple of times of junior team members there that don't have the experience. How, how are we going to how are we going to account for that? Because AI is now being pushed everywhere. And, and hopefully 
you know, everybody stopped adding AI into everything. And I had to, I had a chat, chat with a friend who recorded a podcast earlier today, and he used the example of back in the day when Turbo was added to everything. You know, it was totally meaningless, but it was marketing and it was the in thing, you know, similar to what you were saying about big data earlier, right? But you can go to Bing, you know, you can use Bing chat. It automatically has the, you know, the running stream when you go through Bing chat, what the AI answer would be. Now being renamed to Copilot, it's all horribly confusing from Microsoft, but conversation for it for another day. But if this is being pushed in front of everybody and you've got big companies like Microsoft and, and OpenAI putting it in front of everybody, how do we course correct? How do we make sure that those junior team members are able to validate without the experience of somebody like you that's able to intuitively say, that's a wrong answer, that's the right answer? That's the trillion dollar question. And, and mm. I don't have a great answer for you. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I think that human nature, and I, I hate to say it about human nature, but oftentimes we are drawn to what is easy mm. and quick and the least painful. And unfortunately, to become a master in your field, in your domain, in your industry, it takes time. It takes years to be able to become an expert in what it is that you do. Mm. And there are lots of setbacks. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to be embarrassed. You might even be shamed in the workplace. But that's what gets you to that point of mastery. Mm. What a lot of young people don't recognize, and I get these questions here and there, is, hey, what is the direct line that I can draw from where I am today to where I want to go? Yeah, how mm. can I make sure I don't make mistakes? How can I make sure that I don't have any missteps along the way? So there, I think, just in, in human nature is oftentimes there's a thirst to take shortcuts. And mm. if there's a technology that's in front of you that's cheap or free, and it allows you to save a ton of time by taking shortcuts, a lot of people are going to be drawn to do that. Now, mm. I'm going to make one little disclaimer here, because I don't really know how to answer that trillion-dollar question. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. The, the disclaimer I'm going to make is in the metaphor of Wikipedia, Okay, so Wikipedia took over the public sphere as it comes to encyclopedias and finding information. Mm -hmm. you know, 20, 30 years ago, we could go to a library or to school, and there would be physical books in that library called Encyclopedia, and that's where you would find information. Mm -hmm. And it was factual, and it was objective, and it was correct. And here comes a site called Wikipedia, which is all self-generated. Mm -hmm. And it has become one of the most popular sites in the world, mm. knowing that when you go to that site, it could be you, Adam. It could be Jonathan down the street. It could be Jennifer over there who edited it yesterday and added in new insights. But the reason why I bring this up, Adam, is that Wikipedia is good enough mm. for you to find the information that you need in the context that you're looking for it, even though... Some of it might be wrong. It is probably 80, 90 plus percent right, and that's probably good enough. So mm -hmm. when it comes to leveraging the technology, if we have something where we must be 100% right, I would not leverage the technology for that. Mm -hmm. But for something where I'm putting together an outline for myself, a starting point, if that's 80% of the way, wonderful. I'm going to use that. And then I'm going to write the rest of it myself. 
if there is other kind of research or responses that I need to get 90% right, and it's okay if it's a little bit off, okay, I can leverage the technology for that. So I think mm. my, my last thought to you, Adam, is understand where it can be used, recognize that there may be flaws, and recognize where it should not be used because the mm. consequences of getting it wrong can be too great. And what, what's coming to me from that is, I think you're dead right. You know, what's what's the minimum viable output whereby we can then either query ourselves or seek an expert? And I think if, if I were to make a recommendation, and I don't know whether you'd agree with this, is I think everybody should have a coach or a mentor, d- dependent on what their ambitions are, career goals, you know, personal, professional, whatever it may be. But if you can use the technology, but then surround yourself with experts, even you don't, even though you don't have that expertise, I think that's going to be a key skill. Maybe a little bit more difficult for the introverts that find it difficult in approaching people and do want to rely on a tool to be able to do their work. Mm-hmm. But I think that's going to be a key skill as well, recognizing where your weaknesses are and not being afraid to ask for help. Yeah, I, I think that that's really important. Uh, I, again, I think society is going to change and morph around this capability and, and this new reality that we're in. Um, there, there's one other thought that I've had. I, I don't think that it exists yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I would like to. Is when you use the technology to create an output or an outline or a statement, whatever it is that you're using, I would love to see the the tool itself um, self-rate the response Mm. to be able to say how likely is it that this response is credible Mm -hmm. uh, by giving it a score, you know, 99%, 78%, 52%. What I'd also love to see, and I know that this is part of the challenge that we have and and the propriety that exists Mm. within all of these mechanisms is what are the sources? Where did this information come from? Uh, and you know, even as, as you and I are speaking right now, there are lawsuits outstanding yeah. against these companies for right. not necessarily plagiarizing, but infringing on the IP of other people without their permission and mm. using it to aggregate the language responses that are getting put across the entire globe. Mm. So there's a, there's a couple of thoughts that I've got for you. And and maybe you can you can look into these if, if you find them useful or not when you do your testing and you start pushing boundaries. So one comes back to what you were saying about the AI being able to correct itself. Mm-hmm. And I've been playing around, and we don't have to get into the detail, but you're familiar with the concept of GPTs and bots? Yes. Whereby you can pre-program the model to say, this is your context and this is the sort of output without having to type a really long prompt every right. time, right? Right. So I was doing some experimentation um, in the tax and VAT space. Obviously, here in the UK, it's um, mm-hmm. value-added tax, uh, income tax, and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm sure there's, there's similarities in the US. But the difficulty there is you're, you're bridging a calculation that is what the AI is looking at in terms of if it uses Python in the background, it's looking at in terms of numbers, ones and zeros, right? But then you've got the legislation and the compliance element that it needs to seek to make sure that it's got the percentages, the tax rates and all of that, right? And there is difficulty 
in merging those at the moment because you're asking them to have a knowledge base but then it's almost like a dual function of calculations plus knowledge of the various compliance standards so you've got to do the web search thing you've got to tell it to look at the web and all of those sorts of things but the glimmer of hope that i saw and i can't remember the framework that i took this from but it was adding into your prompt what the language what the language model will be rewarded for and what it will be penalized for and I think it's quite an interesting concept. So you will be rewarded for, and you can make something like you will be given a tip um, for answers that are accurate, well-structured and easy to understand. You will be penalized for calculations that are incorrect and you can list that out. And the reason I mentioned that is I did see a glimmer of hope because I was doing a bit of testing with this and it actually gave an answer but halfway through generating the answer, because you know it does the thing when it produces the text in front of you, it started a new paragraph and it said, ah, actually, what I've just said is wrong. And that's why I say it's a glimmer of hope because it, it, it would obviously look to that penalty or the reward or whatever. And it, it changed tactic whilst it was generating. Um, so I found that quite interesting. I'll see whether I can share the, the chat with you because I, I think I was only playing around with it today and, and getting those responses. So that's my one glimmer of hope. But either way, trying to merge that experience of tax and VAT knowledge with an AI that's trying to do calculations isn't always a match made in heaven. Yeah, I think and, that that's really interesting. And even yeah. going back to the Wikipedia example, it's like, oh, I'm going to give you, Adam, an answer that I know is not great, but it's good enough. Yeah. But if you penalize me, I'm going to give you a better answer. Yeah. And so it's it's remarkable, right, that the machine is using its own perhaps internal logic to say, I'm mm. going to give you something that's pretty good, even though it's not great, mm. unless mm. you tell me you really want something that's great. Mm. And you know, if we don't tell it one way or the other, it's going to just default to what its preference is. And there is all sorts of black magic, you know, because the, the responses are never the same, right? It's a large language model. It's never going to give the same answer multiple times unless right. you're a developer and know how to control that output with the parameters that you use. Um, but the point is, it, it, oh, I've lost my chain of thought there, but, but that output and being able to course correct, I think is going to become more and more important. But the second point that I wanted to, to move on to is your second point about citing sources. So I did a bit of a comparison recently for the use case of doing research, a benchmarking exercise, right? You know, so I work in this industry, you know, I want you to find these financial ratios for me and feedback and I want you to give me the sources that you've found. The, the long and short of it are, is the ability to find good quality sources for accurate information is still not great. So I did it with Bard, uh, which is Gemini Pro now, which is the model in the background. I did it with GPT-4 with the with the web search. And then I also did a couple of other tools that are web enabled, right? Bard was interesting because it actually gave the most convincing argument. It gave me percentages. It gave me example ratios. But then when I asked it, because it didn't provide the sources, it just provided links to further reading. And I was thinking, right, are these the sources or is this further? How does this relate to the response that you've given me? I asked it, please give me the sources for the statistics and the figures you've provided, and it couldn't do it. So I wouldn't want to hang my hat on that. Likewise, um, Bing Chat, now co-pilot, produced the worst response in terms of detail, 
Yeah, so it didn't give me much to go by in terms of description, but the sources were quite good because it found academic articles. It found credible sources. Some of the other ones would just find the best rated SEO optimized pages. Right. Yeah, so some of them just came back with, you know, um, I think NetSuite, some of the other tools, which is fine if it's validated. But what you've got to appreciate is a lot of these tools are promoting from a marketing perspective. Right. And they're looking at accuracy in their documentation. They're looking at, are you a lead or not? Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? I found that really interesting. I still think there's yeah. a way to go with the research piece. Yeah, I mean, it, it introduces a whole new dynamic of challenge whereby... Uh, is it really looking at the most credible sources or is it looking at the sources that have um, the greatest magnitude because they are uh, search engine optimized or they are from a big company with a lot of spend to try to get presence all over uh, all over the Internet? Mm-hmm. Uh, or they are a company that paid a bunch of people to write a bunch of white papers that are now all mm-hmm. being aggregated in terms of uh, the technology. So mm-hmm. I, you know, these are all really, really important questions to ask. And mm-hmm. unfortunately with a lot of the questions, I don't know that we have the answers, but they're just important questions. Fine.